0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Karen Bender, author of two novels, Like Normal People and A Town of Empty Rooms, two short story collections, Refund and The New Order, and is the co editor of an anthology called Choice that focuses on women's reproductive choices. Bender is currently a visiting professor of creative writing at Holland's University. Her latest story collection, The New Order, contains themes of instability and fear, violence, and political upheaval. Many of the stories were written leading up to the 2016 presidential election. In The New Order, we see an America that is increasingly threatened with issues of sexual assault, dishonest candidates, anti-Semitism, and a dwindling sense of personal power. I'd like to note that the first story in the collection is more chillingly realistic today than when I interviewed Karen Bender on October 17th. It is called Where to Hide in a Synagogue and tells the story of two women in their 60s who are tasked with preparing an emergency plan in case a shooter enters their sanctuary of worship. Just 10 days after we spoke, a shooter massacred 11 Jews in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. It's devastating to see fiction reflect our worst fears, but also a reason why we must continue to write and read and share ideas. We began the interview with Karen Bender discussing what was bothering her and nagging at her mind when she began the short story collection, The New Order.
1: I think with all of my work, I write to kind of figure out some unrest, either within me or outside in the world, trying to figure something out, trying to capture the chaos and, and form it into a narrative, which is which is a form of control, and you know, kind of trying to find a way to control it. So I, I think the first one I started actually was um, the last story, on a scale of one to ten. Which was, you know, kind of trying to deal with, I guess, feelings of dislocation and and chaos and and finding ways to belong, but trying to find ways that are belong that feel true. <laughs> so it started with that, and I actually, I think the second one I worked on was Mrs. America, which started titled The Lie, and you know, I think I started that before actually the campaign started in 2015. I started it because I was just I was really curious about that character based on Republican female candidate. But I think I wanted to explore that that person. And then as the campaign started, I just thought, oh, my God, you know, this is just playing out. And the same issues that felt true in, in the character of Mrs. America in certain ways were true about the campaign about Trump, you know, exploring narcissism and how it's just this This, you know, horrible driving and destructive force. So, so there are all these different things I want to explore.
0: I have a few words for what I came out of this. One of them is sort of this low level, although sometimes it spikes really high, sense of violence. And the other is a sense of unease that exists through your stories. And so you were writing this, you know, during the, the 2016 presidential election. And you mentioned this story on a scale of one to 10. That is a story where there's a family whose daughter was getting picked on at school and things weren't going well with the mother's employment. So they moved to another country. And all their problems come with them. So the daughter is again being picked on or left out, and they thought that they created this whole new life. And so what they decide to do, they're Jewish, is the only other school available to them is a Christian school. So they go to the Christian school and tour it. And the daughter seems pretty happy. She's talking to everyone. And the man, there is like on a scale of one to 10, how Jewish are you? And so they're sort of faced with this question, like, can they put their daughter in this school where everything really revolves around a love of Jesus, which just isn't part of their religion. You know, I came out at the end thinking this thought that sometimes you have to pick the harder path, not because it's harder, but because it's more authentic to you.
1: That was an interesting story to write, and it, it is, uh, you know, kind of based somewhat on ex- on some experiences we had um, when we were, we were lived in Taiwan for a year, when my whole husband had a Fulbright. And one thing that was interesting is, you know, kind of meeting some people who were who were evangelical and had this whole structure that they lived in that that was very different from from us. You know, we we are Jewish. And, you know, we, we've been living in the South for, for many years um, where we are kind of, you know, where it doesn't feel like it's a usual thing to be Jewish. And in Taiwan, it, I mean, it was even more like we were like one of the few, like five Jews in the entire city we were in. So so I think that the thing that was interesting to me is, is the choice that they were making of, you know, this love, you know, the, or what they per- perceive to be this love um, from Jesus, which which was comforting to them, you know, and there there was a sense of faith and how that part of Judaism, for me anyway, is not is is not sort of entering into that. It's about questioning and the you know love or connection is is in the religion. It's different. So I, I wanted to write about that skepticism and finding your own yeah and finding your own path, even even if it is harder.
0: You mentioned um, Mrs. America, and that was a story about a woman, very conservative woman, who is running for a campaign. I think it was first Senate. Right. And she has four children and her daughter's kind of trouble. Her daughter doesn't maybe necessarily have the same conservative values as her or she's just a teenager trying to find her way in the world. And she has some friends that might have questionable values or behaviors. And she ends up taking pictures of herself naked and putting it on Twitter and her, her mother tries to delete it and take away her phone and then her husband gives her her phone back and she does it again. And there's this central point in the story where the daughter says to her like, kind of look, you're out there soliciting votes. I'm soliciting likes on Twitter. What's the what's the difference?
1: It was very hard to write, but also just really interesting to write, just delving into that family and trying to figure them out. And and um, I don't know. What is the difference? I mean, I think the idea is what what was interesting to me about the character in, in Mrs. America is how she could compartmentalize her, um, how, how she could just lie and 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 what is the psychological process that allows people to do that you know she she's getting votes in that story by spreading a vicious lie about the other candidate and you know what is the what is what her daughter is doing is is just kind of just getting getting votes on twitter just because of um because of her naked photos you know so i think there is actually a little bit of a difference.
0: In a way, the daughter is actually more authentic because what happens in the story is her opponent is talking yeah. that he his dog sleeps in the bed with him. And she right. sort of turned it around, as yeah. you see in real politics, to say that he sleeps yeah. with his dog. And mm. she gets traction. She is able to get him riled up, her base riled up. And it so yeah. mirrors yeah. so many tactics that are out there today.
1: I know, I know, and that was written before some of the things that were going on that that Trump was doing, and it it's it's terrifying, honestly. You know, just to see what people will believe, and how and how um, candidates will manipulate that, and you know, in in a way, I, I guess the the use of the daughter in the story is actually to try and make her kind of a, a bit of a moral center because she she disagrees with what the mother is doing, but I just was so curious what it would be like to be you know how what is their psychological process they can do this i look at all these people and i think what are they doing you know and as a as a writer i think part of your job is to try and figure out everyone you know try and figure it out the publishing industry is a system
0: books are mirrors into people's experiences
1: and in season two of missing pages We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world in season two we're turning up the
0: dial she wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around the term is academic fraud teachers in florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired
1: we'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like jody picot for their first-hand experiences you can child proof your world but you can't world proof your child it's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories Listen and subscribe to Season two wherever you get your podcasts.
0: because there's sort of this unease and violence and, and you say helplessness that mm-hmm. that you're feeling and you and you put it into your art, do you mm-hmm. then want your art to do something? I mean, do you have sort of an end goal? Does it feel better mm-hmm. to write it? Is there something you want from your readers?
1: I mean, I feel like the purpose of art and um, action, which I feel like is so key now, you know, as as readers, as writers, as citizens, is that is that you read for different purposes. One is, you know, to be understood. You know, to see your feelings. You know, that it can feel empowering or nourishing to feel, see your feelings or your anger, or your unease, or frustration or grief or any of it mirrored. You know, that you see that in the page. Or you also can be instructed, you know, that you've an experience that you haven't had, but someone else has, and that you learn what it, that's like, what it's like to be someone else. And um, so, you know, and then I think, you know, you can be energized in some way. And then I guess my my hope is, as a writer, you know, that people are changed in some way. There's something that clicks on in their mind, you know, that 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 they they feel a little bit different, and then that they act. You know, I feel like the act of reading and action. Uh, can be linked, you know, that, that they feel like, oh, this is the country we're in, how upsetting, you know, what can I do to help change it? So there was a review, I think I saw somewhere, I think it was Goodreads, or or, or somewhere that where uh, a, a reader wrote, you know, that makes me feel so that something is wrong with the country, and, and what can I do? And, and I, I just thought, wow, that's really powerful response, you know, and that, You know, how can reading and action be linked? I I hope they can.
0: There is kind of this sense of violence throughout your stories. And I don't mean graphic violence. I mean, there's there's the threat of violence and there's real violence. There's everything from young girls experiencing violence from the first time, whether they're watching an attack that happened in Israel, a school shooting, uh, the fear of an elevator, a man grabbing them. And right. I'm wondering if you could talk about this pervasive trope.
1: Gosh, I mean, I think it just is everywhere. You know, I mean, I, I guess I was trying to articulate just a feeling that I, I, I feel is, is there in, a, in all of these kind of situations, right? As a woman, I mean, I think, you know, just more and more, you know, the, the, the sense of our lives should not be this way, that there should not be this fear of, of attack from so many different venues, Right. And being Jewish, you know, that the whole Charlottesville rally was just terrifying, right? And then, you know, the shootings. I mean, just thinking about, you know, the school shootings and how this is not how I grew up. You know, I, I don't remember this growing up, but it really is somewhat recent that, it, you know, it feels like we're kind of under attack from, from ourselves, right? That there's violence that can go on any minute. And, and how I think that really does pervade the American psyche. It's not the same when you're abroad. I mean, I remember when we were living in Taiwan and there were no guns, you know, the people didn't have guns and how much safer we felt that, that, you know, that someone is not going to just pull out a gun, you know, and how aware you are on any, and so many interactions, you know, with the disability, I was actually stopped at a stoplight, um, it was a few months ago uh, when I was about to turn into the university where I work. And it was a left turn. And um, I was just like really slow. And I kind of missed the light. And this person started honking in back of me. And this woman gets out of the car. And, you know, she was like this woman in a suit and she starts yelling at me, like, how did you not turn? And I just felt like, oh, my gosh. And my first thought was, does she have a gun? <laughs> you know, and I was I was just like, sorry, I missed the light. But it just was like that that you feel the sense, I think, as, a, as an American, that things can go out of control at any moment. I think that is something I want to capture.
0: One of the things that struck me about your characters was that there was a difference between your characters who experienced mm-hmm. violence for the first time and mm-hmm. ones who've who've had it before personally. So you have a, a story about an elevator where a woman has experienced um, being groped in the elevator before and threatened to be raped. And she's sort of remembering it. But then you have, and we can talk yeah. about that, but yeah. then you have this story called this is who you are, where you have this young Jewish girl, and there's there's kind of a three storylines going on, but she's experiencing violence for the first time in that in Hebrew school, there was an attack in Israel, and their Hebrew teacher makes them write postcards to the survivors. And then at the same time, a girl of, at school that she goes to at her regular school is maybe being molested by an adult teacher. And I'm wondering if you could talk about capturing that sort of transition of innocence to Mm. being more savvy to the harder truths of the world and writing that story.
1: That was an interesting story. I mean, I think I had one for a long time to write that story about Hebrew school and kind of this strangeness actually of being Jewish in Southern California, you know in the seventies, you know, with a lot of violence around you you know in in both in Israel at that time but also. With the Holocaust and, you know, with your you know grandparents, you know, escaping Russia and all this, you know. So there's a sense that there was a lot going on sort of around you in terms of violence, but, but your day-to-day life was pretty safe, right? I think feeling as a Jewish person in, in Los Angeles, I think it was one of these little, it felt kind of like an island, actually. And then you have, but then you have the, the sort of violence of misogyny, and I look back at my junior high and high school and it really was pervasive you know just kind of what women were subjected to and and the kind of weird interactions that that went on
0: so i think i wanted to capture that story of in the elevator i yes. thought was interesting because some of your stories you write from this claustrophobic space and i mean both sort of thematically (laughs) and physically, which is, as a writer, is always interesting because putting your characters in a claustrophobic space where they can't leave already ratchets up the tension right (laughs) in in this story of the elevator this woman when she was young was groped and this man said to her in the elevator i could rape you right now and then years later she's stuck in an elevator with this man and her fear is palpable
1: yeah i mean i think it's interesting i wrote that story after the access hollywood tapes came out and everyone's talking about you know their experiences and and you know, just thinking of just my own life and, and you know, various things and and I think I thought about the idea of of trauma and 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 just you know memories and, and how how people avoid things, you know, in, in deep ways. I mean the, the Ford thing was so powerful you know, and she talked about the second door, you know, or she that simply made her think back on that event. So I just thought about an elevator as as a very charged space. I think I was looking at the images of all those elevators in the Trump Tower, <laughs> you know, where they just I just kept seeing those images. And I thought, what would it be like to have this happen in an elevator and then get stuck in it? And and so it just felt like this really, like charged way to kind of have this character deal with these feelings. So it was definitely a response to that the Access Hollywood thing.
0: So it seems like you write so much based on current events. Is that what fuels you?
1: Sometimes. I mean, I think it's an interaction. I think it's both. I mean, for this book, it seemed to be, um, I think, more than my other work. Um, but I think I do, I do get nourished by what's going on and want to make sense of it or want to maybe have an emotional reaction, you know, to what is happening. It's interesting. We just read story. I stand here. Ironing by Tilly Olson in, um, in a story somewhere I'm teaching right now at Holland's. And I mean, it's such an amazing story, you know, about, you know, this mother and she's ironing and she's talking about someone, a guidance counselor calls her from the school to talk about her daughter who's he's worried about. And she's talking about all of the ways she feels like it's been difficult to raise her daughter. And and part of that is because she um, has had to work. She was a single mother and had to work like all these jobs and, and couldn't really take care of her. And and it, it's a great, it's like an amazingly emotional story, but really what it's about, what the students is pointing out it, it, that we don't have maternity leave. Right. And so if she had had maternity leave, a lot of the issues in the story wouldn't have been issues. So, I mean, I think one thing I, I, I like to do is you look at what's going on in the world and you think what's an emotional you know, response that fiction can provide that will maybe people, help people see how can the world be different so that people don't have to struggle. I mean, in a sense, the violence in the, in the story of the New Order, it's you know, the ramifications of, of a shooting and how, people, how it affects people. So hopefully that has some effect on how people can change the world or see the world.
0: And the story, The New Order, that takes place also in California and the main character is a young girl and she is in band. She plays the cello and someone from their band group went into the cafeteria early and ended up getting shot by a father who came to school and they don't ever know why. Oh. And then you have the girl who's the narrator has this friendship with another girl where they're sort of vying for the first cello seat. And she says to the other girl who was better than her, just out of, out of malice, really, you're not going to get this. And I was thinking about the violence that girls actually do to each other. And that, in that case, it's with their words. And, Uh and yet what, and what do we take on as women and guilt Mm. later in life for those, what seem like maybe petty infractions against other people, but we carry them with us as women for so long. She carried the guilt of saying that to this girl throughout right. her life,
1: yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. Um that was such an interesting story for me to to write. It was actually the the sort of um scene for that story is is from a story a friend of mine told me where well, he said that um, he'd had a, a friend that had visited him um, after many years and was staying with him, and, and they were talking, and there was some misunderstanding between them that that had actually kind of, kind of nourished the person in, 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 a, in a way. And I, I love the idea of a misunderstanding that that nourished someone in a way that was different from what the, the first character – thought and and it's also a response to this Alice Monroe story called fiction, which is this fantastic story where there's a misunderstanding um one one character experiences something in a way that's different from another um over a course of years. And so I, I wanted to kind of deal like have that switch at the end, but just need to find the container for it. And, and I think, you know, and and I did want to address the school shooting um issue in my work and I, i'd done that before in in refund and in, in a couple stories actually in reunion and also the sea turtle hospital but it just is something that is so you know it, it's just these attacks that happen so often it's just part of our world and i i just needed to write about it again so so I wanted to set it in this school orchestra with these girls competing, because I felt like that's interesting to me, the idea of, of, of girls in competition, because I don't think it's really looked at enough and, you know, desire for power and desire for attention. And so I wanted to kind of play with all that. Yeah, in terms of the, the guilt, I don't know if that's necessarily particular to women. I think that, that people can feel guilty about things over years and, you know, for a lot of different reasons. I'm I'm glad you saw that as like a little violence between them because that's yeah, that's what I intended.
0: You have a sister that writes. Yeah, Amy, yeah. You were mentioning the competition between girls. I'm just curious what that's like in adulthood to both be writing. And does that do you talk about writing a lot? Do you ever feel envious of each other? How does that work for you?
1: Yeah, well, Amy, yeah, Amy and I actually did our first um event together in um, Idaho we went to this place called the cabin and we talked about writing together and it was amazing and I mean she's an incredible writer and and really different from me too she she tends it more toward the magical and you know in a way that I that I don't as much and it's like a bond you know to be able to to talk about writing and gossip you know you know, with her about other things going on and to be understood. You know, and my husband's also a writer, Robert Siegel, and, and we talk about writing. And so I think, you know, the writing world can be very hard, you know, kind of this hall of mirrors thing, but, you know, it can be really nice to have someone that you can talk to about it.
0: Was there something in your home growing up that inspired both <laughs> of you and your sister to be writers?
1: writers so it's interesting I mean, it's a great question so our mother is a dancer a choreographer and so she was very it was very supportive of the arts um and our father's psychoanalyst and so he was you know supportive you know self-expression so I think there was definitely an openness toward art you know I, I look at you know students and and what they say their parents you know would would um say or do about their writing or be supportive or not and it's actually really upsetting to me to how many parents are not supportive of writing or dismissive or you know you know demeaning in various ways and and one thing that was actually really great about about our family was that we didn't um Yeah, we didn't have that. We, you know, we could write whatever we wanted. You know, that was a free zone. And I think that's, (laughs) that's been super helpful. And I I think it, you know, I think in certain ways, you know, people sometimes say, oh, you're writing so dark. And it's like, well, I think I, I think it probably is sometimes, although I think it can be funny, too, because it feels like that's a place to be free to say whatever you want. And in in regular life, I, you know, I feel I don't have to be, you know, kind of dark, you know, but I think in my writing, I can be whoever I want. And that's really great.
0: In your first story, which is called Where to Hide in a Synagogue, (laughs) you have Eva and the narrator and they used to be really good friends and they they sort of had a, a a tragedy eva's husband died and it sort of put a rift in their relationship they're in the temple trying to figure out if there's a bomb or there's a shooter, where could they hide? So they're analyzing and they're looking at, should we run out this door? Who should we put in this to sit in this pew who can open the door for others? Is it like the emergency exit in the airline where you have to be willing and able to open the door and help other people out? Can you hide in the ark? Should you throw the Torah on the floor or not? And Eva has all these kind of superstitious Beliefs. Some some are more religious. Others are superstitious about how the world has to work in order to be safe. And so the narrator actually gives up her power to let Eva believe these things.
1: That's an interesting, yeah, analysis of it. Oh my gosh, it, that was a hard one to write, but interesting to write. She wants to maintain a connection with her friend, but then she starts seeing. <laughs> As, you know, Eva's kind of worldview becomes clearer and clearer that she actually is a Trump supporter, you know, and and that that is a fissure between them. Um, But at the end, I feel like then they're both in this situation, like who is knocking at that door? So that's interesting that she gives up her power to to get to get along. And I think that that is probably true.
0: I had a question about endings because all of your endings You know, the idea of an ending is maybe not necessarily to wrap up the story, but to open it up further. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that's your aim for your endings and Mm -hmm. if there are so many of your endings just found these these great poignant moments and stopped there. And I'm wondering if that's a big effort for you or if that comes easily for you and what you're hoped for.
1: For my endings, I, I tell my students this: I really want to balance between a point of hope and despair. Like you want to leave your 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 reader in a place of unease or or questioning, and you want to leave them with a feeling. You don't want to wrap it up. Um, and I was thinking about some great endings with writers. We were just reading Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson all together in, in my um, in my tutorial, and. Um, his endings are just incredible. They just leave you at this kind of, kind of precipice of of hope and despair, I think. And, you know, John Cheever has also great endings. Um, And I, I just think looking, yeah, I think endings are really important. And they
0: are about leaving a reader with a feeling. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Right. Yeah. So I was looking, oh my God, there's so many. It's so hard to pick one, but I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll pick one that I really love from John Cheever, who had just influences me. Whenever I read him, I love him from the country husband. And this actually influenced me in a lot of ways. Okay. So it is starts at the beginning. I'll read the first paragraph to begin at the beginning, the airplane from Minneapolis in which Francis weed was traveling East ran into heavy weather. The sky had been a hazy blue with the clouds below the plane lying so close together that nothing could be seen of the earth. Then mist began to form outside the windows and they flew into a white cloud of such density. They reflected the exhaust fires. The color of the cloud darkened to gray and the plane began to rock. Francis had been in heavy weather before. But he had never been shaken up so much. The man in the seat beside him pulled a flask out of his pocket and took a drink. Francis smiled at his neighbor, but the man looked away. He wasn't sharing his painkiller with anyone. The plane began to drop and flounder wildly. A child was crying. The air in the cabin was overheated and stale, and Francis' left foot went to sleep. He read a little from a paper book that he had brought at the airport, but the violence of the storm divided his attention. It was black outside the ports. The exhaust fires blazed and shed sparks in the dark, and inside, the shaded lights, the stuffiness in the window curtains give the cabin an atmosphere of intense and misplaced domesticity. I love this this opening to the country husband because what happens is that the plane almost crashes. It doesn't. Um, it lands, and then Francis Weed goes home to his um, family, and they don't realize there's been a crash. And they're trying to have dinner, and they're just like annoyed at him for coming home, and um, and don't really. Um, they, they, it's just like this this sort of this clash between domesticity and the craziness of life um, and violence and mortality. Um, and it actually really influenced my story reunion, which is in refund, um, where uh, it starts out with a shooting and then a, a character goes home right after. and um there's a similar displacement, you know displaced sort of disoriented feeling. so i just I just love his sensory detail. I love how he's you know, his vividness and his honesty. I just, I love him.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or just something you like?
1: Yeah, I I have here two different openings to Where to Hide in a Synagogue. So it's about two paragraphs. So um what I did is that story started out actually is like a four-page story. Um, and it was almost... Just kind of a satire, you know, but I, um, this is how it started. It started as a letter. Um, to all temple members, in light of the threats being made to other Jewish centers around the nation, we urge all members to be vigilant. There have been suggestions that no one wear heels to services anymore. This is in case you need to run. Sneakers may not coordinate with your outfit, but flats should work. Wear shoes you could leave behind in case you really need to move fast. There's some debate about the safest place to sit. The front row on the right side, first two rows might be better if the terrorist has a gun, because it is possible if you have no physical limitations to get to the exit in four steps. That is the number of steps for a child; an adult would be less. So it's kind of like a list of suggestions. And then, um, so, so this is what I had turned in in an early draft of the collection, and then my editor um, said, "Well." uh, let's set this as a walk through the synagogue with the two friends and it develops the friendship. So this is the new opening. Everyone agreed on the name, the advisory board for safety and wellbeing. The committee would be composed of me and Eva Silverman. And today we would walk through the synagogue discussing strategies to help temporal members in the event of an attack. Together we would come up with a list of suggestions and write a preliminary report. It was a clear day in October Though the air still held the faint heat of summer, I thought I could feel the underbreath of chill in the air. I lived in North Carolina. Charlottesville was four hours away. I arrived at Bethlem Synagogue 15 minutes early. I did not wait in front of the synagogue for a reason I did not want to explain, but that felt entirely right. I walked to the entrance of the sanctuary, but did not stay there long, and then I wandered into the parking lot. I belonged to the synagogue for 35 years. My shoulders braced a little, As the cars rushed past me, and I wondered as they drove by what the drivers were looking for and what they would see. So it was interesting. So this is just more of a character oriented beginning. And then there was a a narrative and the other one was more like a list. So that's kind of how that changed. Where do you write? Wherever I can. (laughs) Let's see. Usually I have a little desk in the bedroom or I write at a table in the living room, or just wherever I can shut the door. I don't have a specific office or anything.
0: What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: You know, I'll go on walks. I like going to the gym. You know, you know, just being in the world anywhere.
0: <laughs> who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: First, I show it to my husband Robert, who who reads everything first and and is. It's always great at telling me some, you know, just keep going or, you know, why don't you think of it's a different way?
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Um, I mean, I think rejection is part of being a writer and you you just have to get used to it and it's always painful. Um, I think uh as I've gotten older and just seeing that it's part of it, I just I know that some bad things will happen, but some good things will happen too. So I think you know, realizing even if one, one person doesn't like your work, someone else, someone else, you know, hopefully will, you know, and that you just have to get it to the right person.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Oh, God, I looked at that. I can't even think of one. I like too many words. I can't pick
0: one. (laughs) You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Karen Bender, author of the short story collection, The New Order. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.